You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Alex Hanna. Alex is an amazing actor who was a few classes after me at Juilliard. I've always appreciated his warmth, his sense of humor, and his generosity as a performer. He's someone who I always enjoy getting into a deep conversation with, and this was no exception. I hope you enjoy the 74th episode of The Compass. Well, we'll get to catch up about all sorts of things. Yes. (laughs) Let's just get started. So how do you keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Wow. (laughs) Dive right in. Dive right in. Um, and what is the dark side for you most often? I was going to say, uh, yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, I really appreciate what you've done with this and I really appreciate the venture and, thank you. um, yeah, it's really great. Um, the dark side for me, yes. Um, (laughs) is... I think, and this is largely, I'm probably going to talk about my therapist a lot. Hey, you will not be the first. I'm sure I won't. (laughs) Uh, So big shout out to my therapist, June. Uh, She's wonderful. Um, uh, Big advocate for therapy. Um, It's helped me a lot. But um, kind of understanding what my dark side is, you know, you can combat things till the cows come home, but unless you understand... (laughs) exactly what it is you're combating um and just very recently it's come to my consciousness that my dark side is shame Hmm. just kind of blanket there are many multiple manifestations of shame um you know fear and anger and uh Things like that, but, and I know, uh, I know I'm not unique in (laughs) having levels of shame and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, shame uh, in different parts of my life. And, um, I consider myself a very lucky person. So, and like part of that shame is just like acknowledging that there is something wrong, even though, you know, there is... Even though so much going right, you're doing okay in a lot of ways. I'm doing so okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. But it's good to be able to put a name on it. Yeah, I think so. So, I am not practiced in this by any means. You know, this is a recent development <laughs> in the past few weeks and past month or two of like. Oh, how, how, how does, now that we've like put our finger on shame, right. Um, being kind of the underlying, the wide umbrella, the, you know, there's so much, so much to it that you can't possibly encompass it all at one time. Um, but now that I've kind of put my finger on seeing how far reaching it is, what it covers, what it, how it affects me in this situation and that situation, you know, it's kind of like, okay, what are the ways to combat it? And as June said very wisely to me, um, it is self-compassion. Yeah. Which, uh, being being a very good, very studious person, I uh, <laughs> June didn't spoon feed this to me, so, um, but I went right home and was like, okay, so how does one do self-compassion? Because you can Google anything now and get a response. <laughs> How to compassion. How to, well, I mean, really, <laughs> how do you do self-compassion? Yeah. And like, there is, that is like a practice. There are people out here, there who do that and have studied that and have done scientific, I raised my eyebrows, hopefully. Have done studies, scientific or otherwise. Have done studies <laughs> that purport to be scientific of some nature, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, do like test groups and things like that, you Yeah. Know. Um, my eyebrows raised maybe a little bit when I read some of it, but like, okay, here are like some of the things we're trying when it, 
comes to self-compassion that we found maybe help some people. Okay. And they are Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Please share with the group. Please share with the group. Um, I haven't yet seen Dear Evan Hansen, but I... I haven't either. Okay, great. Um, but I've heard that this is a central component of that show. Um, but Letters to Oneself. Hmm. Uh, about as though from a good friend. So uh, I have taken to... It's very hard for me. I don't feel like doing it ever. Yeah. And I get... Um, I get uh, in my head about it. I don't want to do it. I, I'm like, come on, I'm fine. Right. <laughs> I can handle this. I can handle it. I don't need, why do I need to do this? Right. But I do, you know, write a letter to myself as though from a close friend about anything that's bothering me and how would a close friend say... Alex, you're great, you know? Be Alex, easy on yourself. Be, be a little easier on yourself. You've always been hard on yourself. Yeah. You know this about yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it is easy. In real life, it's easier to do that for someone else, to be like... Totally. And, and you know, we're actors. We're able to put ourselves in other <laughs> characters' roles. So, like, I do have a relative facility with, like, Okay, what would my friend say about me? I can right. I can do that with If my friend were feeling relatives. this way, what would I tell them? Right. Right. Well, that's interesting. And that's a and that's a new thing. Um and <laughs> and also like changing doing things that are different, you know, given the relative newness of it, it is not a way I have combated the dark side for a long time. Right. But for a long time, I have realized that, you know, I'll have a life philosophy for three months, six months that like crystallizes the world for me and it helps me make a lot more sense of the world, whatever it is. And I wish I could come up with an example of what one is, you know, like an essay that I read that, right. you know, kind of... That you focus on for a little bit. Yeah, that like really makes the world kind of seem a little bit clearer for a while and then it like stops making sense because you know whatever whether it's because you know the more you think about something the more it actually literally changes in your brain as i i don't think i i've read the study but i i think we know now that when you recall a memory it actually literally changes the memory in your brain hmm. um I think actually our our good friend Richard Feldman uh, yeah, first turned me like on something to, he would say. <laughs> first turned me on to that idea but uh, I also you know my relationship with self-compassion new though it is I'm, I'm I'm not going to be I hope that it is a, a lasting tool for me yeah because I do there are a lot of dots connected by understanding shame that go back a long way in my life that like make it all make sense. So I, <laughs> I assume June will continue to be asking me about, so when's the last <laughs> time you wrote a letter to yourself? Right. Well, in a way that could be an exciting discovery to have finally like kind of put some puzzle pieces together about it. Something you've been aware of for a long time, but to crystallize it. And now going forward, you have like a specific thing to try to figure out or to, focus on in a way yeah yeah and I, and, and I think that happens trying not to be too you know to like latch onto it and <laughs> have that now be the excuse for why things aren't working because you know contribute to, to work my... too hard at that and uh, then or, ex yeah exactly feel shame that you haven't overcome it yet <laughs> correct yeah. yeah well it's something that's interesting in our society where you're like taught that if you work hard at something, you can fix it. And sometimes that's not the answer. Right. And, right. And sometimes in our particular field, you can work hard at something and not get quote unquote rewarded for it. Absolutely. Which is part of what's so 
confusing about this field. <laughs> absolutely. And I was absolutely raised with, with the, um, with extraordinarily encouraging parents who continue to be extraordinarily encouraging, mm -hmm. um, with the, uh, kind of mantra of like, you can do anything you want. And I so appreciate that encouragement and that sen sentiment. And I also know it's not unique among millennials to n now be, have that a little bit coming to a head where it's like, okay, yes, you, you can probably do anything wa you want. And my kind of additions to that for myself and now my friends and maybe I'll try to pass that along to my little uh, nephews, my, my mm -hmm. sister's kids, but like, you know, yes, you can do anything you want as long as you're willing to work really hard and as long as you're okay with failure. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, you will fail. And it, and, and it is not a unique thing among millennials to, um, uh, encounter a failure and to be entirely discouraged from the entire pursuit. Yeah. And that is something that I absolutely struggle with mightily. Yeah. There's that, I don't remember who said it, but that quote that I'm sure Richard also said to us about you fail and then fail better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I try to remind myself of. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, interesting. It's interesting that you're in a phase right now where you have such concrete, <laughs> a concrete exercise. How, how lucky for me. <laughs> Someone asked me about the dark side and I know exactly the answer. <laughs> but why not? I mean, people talk about doing free writing in the morning, you know, just to let their imagination or their brain kind of run out. And this is, you know, just a slightly more targeted version of that. Yeah. Yeah. It can't hurt. Oh, yeah, it, it certainly can't can hurt. hurt. And, and who knows and, what it'll help with. And I have already, you know, there is immediate and and then also lingering effects of that. You know, I can recall what I've what I've written, and and that in and of itself yeah. is kind of like a, you know, like a momentary salve if I'm um, being you know beating myself up or something yeah. like that. So you're an actor. Yeah. Do you have other artistic outlets or like hobbies that you, are you a writer kind of in your free time or what do you like to do when you're not acting that you find as a creative outlet? Are you a big reader? I'm not a big reader. Mm -hmm. You like to go see other artwork. Um, I'm, I'm a reader of the news. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a, a big reader of literature. Tempted to add, <laughs> I'm not a big reader of literature. Okay. And uh, yeah, what are my other pursuits? Well, I come from a math and science heavy family. Really? Yes. Are you the only artist? I'm the only artist. Mm -hmm. Um. So my uh, my father is an engineer. As is mine. Great. Uh, my sister. Got her PhD in mechanical engineering. Lovely. As did her husband. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, and I, and uh, I feel like we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and my mother also is is uh, <laughs> she rolls her eyes more than my sister and my father, but uh, she she definitely enjoys you know kind of the type A hmm. nerdy stuff that we get into as well. Um, she does it a little bit more with an eye roll, <laughs> whereas uh, my sister and my dad and I are all uh, pretty, can get pretty deep into things. Uh, playing a game of Scrabble will very quickly devolve <laughs> into how do we normalize the scores based on who got what letters <laughs> or it has. Um, so, uh, techie things have always had a certain appeal to me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you kind of managed to turn that into one of your day jobs, yeah? Uh, so it is now, uh, my day job now does um, 
kind of tangentially deal with technology. Uh, it is mostly a customer service, you know, answering phones and mm -hmm. um, helping customers with, you know, general uh, issues related to orders and commerce and et cetera. Uh, but it has, in the past, uh, I, I tried for a time to be a piano tuner. You did? Yep. What kind of training do you need to be a piano tuner? <laughs> I mean, very weirdly, I enrolled myself in a correspondence course. This sounds like it's out of the 1900s. It sure as heck does. <laughs> Where they, like, send you all the tools, and then you, like, mail back your, like, quizzes, and then they give you, like, a certificate. I mean... At this point, I, I now feel uh, strongly that it is largely bogus, but I... It's kind of amazing, though. <laughs> but it's kind of amazing. And and very much right like a... Yeah, it's like out of a, a Horton Foot play or something. Totally. <laughs> totally. And, and for me, kind of like a combination of that artistic musical. Um, I have a little bit of a m musical background. Um combined with like a very technical yeah and precise yeah math there's a lot of um you know uh yeah math science related things that you need to be aware of about harmonic frequencies and uh -huh. things like that in order to be really good at it and then at a after a certain point and i certainly never got to this point but piano tuners are artists yeah. Very much so. There is very much an artistic aspect to um, voicing and and how do you how do you make a piano sound different? For, you know, different pianists like their pianos tuned differently. Hmm. There is no one right tuning. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked about your family just a little bit. So, what do they? Since they're not in the arts. What do they make of you being an artist? Are you deciding to do that as your as your main pursuit? Yeah, uh, extraordinarily supportive. Um, and they're all in Massachusetts, your family. So uh, none of them are actually now in Massachusetts. You okay. were right. But I you did, are from I did, there originally. I, okay. I did come from Massachusetts. Okay, okay. Yes. Um, uh, my sister lives in Connecticut, and my folks now. My parents live in Rhode Island. Okay, so but not all, too far. All very even closer than Massachusetts. Yeah. And that's great and such a such a wonderful thing to have them so close. My parents come to everything. My sister comes to a ton of things. You get to see your little nephews. I get to see my little nephews. I, I just recently did a job where <laughs> I was, you know, in Hartford at the same time as the birth of oh my, my second nephew, which is amazing. Um, so it's, you know, definitely a luxury to, to have them so close, a bus or a train right away. Yeah. Um, what do they make of it for, you know, they're very curious people. Um, but gosh, right. It's like a very, it's a very different world. It's very, <laughs> it's hard to explain the it's ins and outs. It's hard to, yeah. Especially if you haven't, I mean, look, I've been training on how I talk about it. I feel like I don't have it right about how I talk about a lot of the things about the business. It's, um, I'm <laughs> often very envious of people who have had folks who are in, in the business and, you know, are kind of brought up with a, a lingo and a, and a facility with talking about things because it mm. really does make it easier. You don't have to either justify or feel like you have to justify yes why you're doing what you're doing right or when you have something that you view as a success explaining to them how that's a success when maybe it's not apparent to them absolutely yeah yeah and and all with good intentions and um <laughs> i just very recently i had been told i had to watch whiplash for the longest time <laughs> Um, and very recently just did, and there's this, that scene at the dinner table where, uh, have you seen it? Yes. There's a scene at the dinner table where, you know, he's, you know, he's just had a, a, a momentous accomplishment, you know, being invited to be, you know, on this, on this band, uh, you know, the lead drummer for the, 
for this this jazz band and and <laughs> you know and the people across the table are talking about these meaning menial of course very significant in their lives but like it's like they got onto like the varsity team you know in high school football and you know it's too too right to have to both explain the accomplishment while you're also seeking encouragement right. because of it right. is, I, I certainly don't feel like I have to, um, I, I feel like my family is, is very, very proud of me no matter what and, um, and share that constantly. But, but it's true, you know, sometimes they don't exactly understand what, oh, I'm, I'm super proud of you. That's super exciting. What? Why is it, why is it exciting? <laughs> what is it? Explain more. Yeah, totally. But it totally helps to have people who continuously um, reach out to me and say, explain more because I do want to be very really supportive. Sweet. That's really <laughs> And really understand sweet. why this is a big deal to you because, of course, they know that it is. Yeah. We don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I was curious as to how you've been dealing with the current political climate as an artist. I'm happy to talk about it. So I know everyone's feeling all the things. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how artists might be proactive or just as a citizen, how you've been dealing with it. Hmm. Just thinking about artists being proactive, um, just made me flash on something that everybody should read. And if you haven't read it yet, I will send it to you. It is available as a free online PDF, Making Your Life as an Artist by, and I apologize to the author, uh, Andrew Simonek, I, I want to say. I'm going to Google it right now. Okay, Continue. Great. Just kind of a, it actually doesn't really have anything to do with uh, the political other than, you know, being an artist is political, but it is a... Um, I'm kind of shocked that you uh, nobody's yet mentioned it because everybody who is listening to this podcast should read it. Andrew Simonet. Si- Simonet. 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 Andrew. Published February first, two thousand fourteen. Uh huh. Relatively recently. Yeah. Um, it up. is uh, especially the first half. There, it kind of like starts out in in a very like theoretical. This is what artists do. And let's like take a step back and like, and what he does that really struck me to the core is he kind of does like a side-by-side comparison of the scientific process and the artistic process Hmm. and says very wisely, everything that has ever been created in the entire world by humans is as a result of either the scientific process or the artistic process. And when you put it like that, it's like... (laughs) Oh, well, yep, that's something. (laughs) Um, Anyway. uh, That's interesting. uh, Just made me flash on that, but that's not political action. Yes. Also very much related to shame for me. Hmm. Um, Very concretely, as a straight, white, cisgender, able-bodied man, Mm -hmm. I have some of the privileges, <laughs> he says, ironically, knowing that he has all of the privileges. Yeah. Um, living in the United States, you know, where American exceptionalism is a real thing, you know, talking about refugees, you know, the idea of American exceptionalism feels like a cancer to me. Um, white privilege feels like a cancer to me, uh, you know, Masculinity feels like a cancer to me. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'm being a little bit uh, hyperbolic, a little bit, um, but it is a, a huge problem. I mean, and these aren't things that are new, but with this past election, it's just everything's brought into the foreground and out of the shadows and 
absolutely you know, really as it way. should be and like th- and thank god and and i i know i am i mean in a scary way that it's like in the leadership but in a good way yes that it's out of the shadows and hopefully to be addressed yeah and uh, straight white cisgender able-bodied men like myself uh still have uh, in, including myself still have a lot of ways to go to understand the extent to which we are part of the problem Hmm. and like uh right and shame is uh an understandable byproduct but not a helpful byproduct it uh shame is not uh a useful tool for action it is a useful tool if you want someone to curtail something that they are doing but Uh it is not a useful tool if you want someone to alter their behavior and turn it into something else right (laughs) And I feel like I'm exhibit A of that, you know, when I, you know, going through this election, reading so much news, too much news, (laughs) um, to the point where it is, and this, uh, this happened a little bit before my, um, kind of, uh, realization that shame is a real thing that I need to put my finger on and address, uh, in a much more mindful way. Um, uh, but, uh, as a result of, <laughs> you know, putting my finger on it, I, I am no longer reading the, well, I'm reading less news, you know, I don't have to be an expert. Uh, I don't, I was reading to the level of a journalism, a, a person who follows who's journalism. Getting, right. <laughs> or who's getting paid. You know, I was watching journalism. reliable sources on CNN, which covers the media. And I was like, you know, saying things before he said them, like to that extent. It's like, you no, we, we can leave some of that to the professionals. And at a certain point, you know enough to know that you need to do something as opposed to read more about it. Yeah. And that's a step uh, and that's a step away from it, it, the shame was driving me to go inward to take all of this information that's out there and bring it in and kind of like feed that shame monster that was inside me. Uh-huh. And I had to I had to shut that off. Um uh, still a subscriber to the New York Times, but I had to delete the app. Hmm. I had to delete the fa- Facebook app, which you can still get on your phone by going into Safari and still <laughs> logging on. You can still do it. It's just like, it's not as good, which is a good thing. Yeah, It's not as good of a user experience. That makes me want to use it less, which is a good thing. <laughs> and uh, so definitely the combating of shame because if, if it's not helping you work, if it's not helping you connect with people about how we make things better, if it's not helping you um, make a sign and get out on the street, it's not helpful. That Facebook um, is kind of a spiraling, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, like a whirlpool vortex pull you under vortex. Of, yeah, yes. Spiraling vortex anyway. And then, um, over the past year, like with politics and with the election, it, I feel like it's become even more so. And it's, I feel like it's so easy for people to just post to Facebook and repost and repost and comment and comment and feel like that's an action. When for sure, maybe, you know, maybe I've, my attention has been brought to certain articles or things from Facebook, but it's not an action. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not it, it, it uh, it's not an action for me. Um, and even either. just being in the same room with someone and having an actual conversation, I feel like is much more productive than uh, the Facebook vortex. Well, I and and I certainly, <laughs> as an introvert, I I definitely enjoy more, um, you know, having an intimate one-on-one conversation. Yeah. There is a certain appeal to just staying home in my own apartment by myself and <laughs> yeah. taking in this information as an introvert. But I don't, uh, 
I feel, I won't speak for you, but I do feel like, yes, I was, I was starting to get bothered by the, the folks on my feed who post huh, way more than I do or could, um, more than I should. Um, and I never really felt like I approached that level and, and, and kind of had some feelings about that and some frustrations about that. And it's like, you know, I, I want to be like, yo guys, calm down. But like, <laughs> as I am discovering recently, that's just related to my own shame. Yeah. How, how, how those folks are using that platform and using writing because it is writing. Mm -hmm. It is, <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Um, but like, you know, it is when I post to Facebook, it is absolutely using my writing skills <laughs> to write something. And I will say generally, it, my audience isn't that broad, but in, you know, just on Facebook, but I tailor everything. Uh, I just want my sister and my mom and my dad to read it. Hmm. When I post on Facebook, it's just, hey guys, just checking in. It's public. Everyone can read it. But like, just checking in as a family. What are we doing? Hmm. Are we all on the same page? Um, I don't. I don't post very much to especially when it comes to political things. If I'm posting politically, it is much more of a question than an answer. Mm -hmm. I think. Well, have to relook at my Facebook wall. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I can probably make that argument for pretty much anything, even if it sounds declarative. It is probably more often than not a, here's the statement, period, right? <laughs> and, and then like the right question mark is an implied question to my family that I assume we will talk about next time we get together. Hmm. You know, and, and coming from a... Uh, a family of relative privilege, you know, that's really, that's really, really important to me. You know, I have, that's I have the... great that you guys can talk about stuff like that. Certainly. And there are some divides in my family where we just, we can't, we can't talk about it. Absolutely. Cer certainly very lucky that we are by and large on the same page and uh, yes, very much able to talk about um yeah, really, really significant issues that, you know, as our, our small little army of, <laughs> you know, four or five or whatever, we can influence our, com our communities and, and be fed by our mutual outrage or mutual um, empathy towards those who are uh, struggling a lot more than we are. Yeah. So to shift gears completely. Oh boy. Yes. <laughs> Back to actor type things. I was curious when you were working on the flick a few years ago, how you got through that really long run of that play. Cause I've never done one that's that long. It was a long play, a long run of a long play and a beautiful play. Mm -hmm. um, but I was curious what that experience was for you to be like, I'm an employed actor. Yep. This great production. You had yep. a small part in it, but yep. vital to the small cast. Thank you for saying so. Um, but how did you keep your brain stimulated through that long run with a lot of time backstage, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, in no small part uh, due to the people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a great, great group of people. Wonderful group of, uh, of people. Matt and Louisa and Aaron. Um and uh, stage managers I worked with and the crew that I worked with and, um, you know, the assistant directors and, and we did two runs of that so uh, mm -hmm. across two years. So um, lots of people involved and great people involved, but on a daily basis and backstage, you know, Matt and Aaron and Louisa and, and understudies what, once we uh, got to um, Barrow Street, um, also interacting with those people. Um, yeah, and an interesting uh, challenge uh, having a scene 
that for me lasts about like 45 seconds. That's like 45 seconds of stage time, but like entrance to exit, okay, give it a minute and a half. And then conservatively two hours before my next entrance, which includes an intermission where I have a scene that lasts on the, on the long end seven minutes. I think it's probably more like five. <laughs> um, but yes, a, a very interesting challenge and uh, probably a lot of different ways you can go about it and probably a lot of people that would be like, guys, I got this in the bag and th there's no reason to think that I can't just like walk on stage for either of these, especially after having done it for so long um, and just nail it and, and or whatever I come out with is gonna be just fine. Right. I'll go back to watching Netflix backstage. Exactly right. Um, I tried that a couple of times. I tried, you know, listening to a podcast or, you know, watching TV or zoning out or reading. I mean, I would read the news uh, pretty frequently back then, but um, I couldn't not, or rather, when I was really cut off, either because I left the building or um, or I was like plugged into something where I couldn't hear the show. Um, at Playwrights, we had visual monitors, but at Barrow, we had nothing. So it was just, just the audio monitors. If I wasn't listening and I got to that last scene, I felt really off every time I did yeah. it. Um, there's, it is to me a very sensitive show, as is uh, all of her plays that I've seen. They are very sensitive pieces. There are very sensitive ingredients that go into it. Um, the lights and the sound and the set and the costumes are all brought by very sensitive artists who are very finely tuned. <laughs> um, and to <laughs> have a notion that you could not be as sensitive as that to the th this thing that has been going on for two hours while you've been off stage. The, the energy, it's, it's subtly different night to night. But that to me means everything to the actors who have been cultivating that environment so that when the end of the play comes, when I am not on stage, um, if, if I have inserted something <laughs> into that play that is, uh, that has not been consistent with what all of my scene partners have been doing right. for the, the rest of the two and a half hours, you know, there's no excuse for that. This leads me to another thing that I feel like I have to share with everyone listening to this podcast. Okay. Uh, Chef's Table on Netflix. <laughs> uh, she laughs. I, I haven't watched it yet. That's only because I haven't, haven't watched it yet. Watched it. I know Great. what it is, but I haven't watched it yet. It is to me. Okay. So back up. It is a show about very high-end chefs. So uh, kind of investigating their lives and their pasts and how they've gotten to be, you know, very, very high-end chefs. I cannot, that's all that it's about. It has nothing to do with theater or uh, anything uh, other than just food. That said, I cannot watch this show without thinking in a, like a one-to-one, -one, having one-to-one -one parallels of acting and theater. Cannot watch it every single episode so it's serialized so each hour is a chef and i've i i i've since been like it's the first show that i'm like i have to watch this again and again and again for the rest of my life it is so profoundly correct and the abstraction is so useful because it like if I were to watch the same show about theater, I'd be, I, you know, I'd be nitpicking every little right, thing. Right, because we're too But since it's about food, which I know relatively little about, <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly what it is like being an actor. That is exactly what it's like being in theater. So now I will 
go back to what it is that I've found that makes it almost a one-to-one parallel. Mm -hmm. A meal prepared by a great chef is ephemeral. It is prepared out of ingredients that have been cultivated from the soil, Mm -hmm. from the nutrients in the soil. This is rehearsal, right? This is (laughs) growing your vegetables. Right. And, and, and very carefully selected vegetables and meats and um, um, cultivating those ingredients, working with those ingredients, working those ingredients to present before an audience, <laughs> which is then affected by the audience. It is consumed and it is never again. And then they do it all over again. The next night, there's no... And it's different. And it's totally different. Yeah. And it has to be different. I love it. (laughs) Mind-bogglingly... start watching this tomorrow. Mind-bogglingly clear. It has... It's... um, And and another thing, uh, in one of the episodes, um, and I feel like this theme runs throughout, but like, all chefs, after a certain point, can make a great meal. You have the skills, you can get the ingredients, it's fine. But it really takes something to transcend from you can make a great meal to you you can make an artistic meal. Something that evokes emotion. Something that, you know, at the very least attempts to stir the soul. I cannot recommend this show enough. I feel (laughs) like I talk about it ad nauseum. It's it's also shot beautifully and and it's. Uh, yeah, I'm so excited to watch it. <laughs> I, That's a fantastic way to think about it, though, because I I mean I totally would hope that I would do the same thing if I were in your shoes for the flick, and that it's great that you gave that such respect, and everyone involved such respect. But when you're in the day to day of it, I was just curious, like how do you push through the fact that that's one there's one day where you're just tired, right. and you don't want to think about it until you have to go on stage or like how those nitty gritty things of like, when do you just have to fall back on your technique? Sure. <laughs> and sure. just get through it. To- totally. And, th- and there absolutely was at least one day where I was like, you know, I, uh, I was recovering from a, a fever or a flu or something like that. And, and I was like, I'm going to be fine. Um, but boy, I got, th- got out there on stage and I was like, I am maybe not going to make through this five minute scene. And I, I, but I like, you know, it's a small scene and it's like, whatever, I'm going to be fine. You know, I can tough it out. Right. And the audience maybe didn't know, but you, but it could feel the difference in preparation. I couldn't feel anything. It was like, you know, and that's not a way I want to be an open and sensitive instrument and able to, um, for the little amount of time that Annie and Sam have entrusted to me to, you know, shepherd this portion of the play through to, you know, whatever. I may I may just be like the tomato or the garnish on this meal, but mm-hmm. like, you know, if the chef is watching, if the if that tomato is like looking a little mushy, throw <laughs> it out and get the next one. I mean, and I'm uh, it, and maybe we don't have quite that luxury, you know, there aren't like five other actors waiting in the wings to like take my part, thank God. Um, <laughs> or probably there are, and I just don't, you know. No, but if, you're, if you're going to be a tomato, right, exactly. be the best tomato you can. Absolutely. And, and, and it is incumbent upon me to make sure that I am constantly rechecking in and making sure that I am uh, bringing the the things that are asked of me, which is not nothing, yeah. which is very, very far from nothing. Yeah. And very, very far from just, oh, my innate talent that I can just phone in and show up. I, I don't believe that. Yeah. Um, is there anything from the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Like a lesson you've learned or something <laughs> like that? It could be an event too, but... But all my shame is getting in the way of it. But what is the (laughs) small thing that you're really proud of? Interesting. Um, I know it's a hard question. In the past few years, I've kind of started taking to... I've had a hard time pinning down where exactly it started. But I'm really excited about it. Um, 
as kind of a a non acting related some time ago let's say two years ago okay i started thinking about i was kind of turned on to the steve jobs mark zuckerberg barack obama thing about wearing the same thing every day this comes from as i later learned first of all that, that was like an interesting concept to me of like oh you know it's just simple just wear an everyday uniform I don't have a job that requires a uniform, but like, what would be my uniform? You know, what's my acting uniform? Mm -hmm. Which is not a concept that a lot of actors have, right? We have costumes. We, you know, we dress up. That's part of our... Dress for the audition. Exactly right. Um, But I started thinking about like, ah, actually, you know, I don't have that many auditions. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so that's part of it. But... um, And then from there, uh, you know, just like a little more, I was also thinking about getting a bike and the idea of wanting to go from uh, an audition to my day job to maybe like a nice fancy opening and also all in between going to be biking potentially in the rain. Right. How do you have an outfit that accomplishes all of that? (laughs) Hard challenge. Yes. I like a challenge. Especially in the summer. Especially, especially in the summer. Great. So I like kind of started down this path of like, oh, these are actually like a complicated set of requirements and not untechnical in nature. So uh, I started into that and have discovered things and I'm thinking maybe it'll uh, turn into a blog shortly, maybe tomorrow (laughs) I'll start. (laughs) I'll, you know, make a, I'll put some money down into Squarespace and, um, start designing this. But, um, but like it has evolved from just clothes, um, to, um, I mean, generally like consumer products, but like it is also to me related to environmental responsibility, like yeah, w- uh, needing less. It is, um, so like what I've distilled it down to is it is minimal form and maximal function. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the minimalism of it is minimal in terms of environmental impact um, and still getting a lot out of it so that you need to have less of it. Um, I call it technicalism. <laughs> I love it. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but I kind of love that about it too. It's got some great sounds in there. It's got a lot of great <laughs> sounds, yeah. Um, it doesn't exactly flow off the tongue, but you gotta like practice it, which I, I appreciate. <laughs> um, so I'm, uh, I've gotten into sharing the things that I've learned so much that I, uh, it's, it's kind of at a boiling point where I kind of like need to share it with maybe a wider audience. Yeah. Well, let me know when you do put up the blog and nope. I'll let people know. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no, cause I mean, I, you know, clothes, very important to some people, not to other people can seem silly, but these things, these are really things about the way you live your life every day. Mm-hmm. If you're riding your bike everywhere and in the city, when it's not like you're driving your car everywhere, like when you leave your apartment, these are the items that really shape your day-to-day life. Yep, and will sustain you for the rest of the day. There was also a concept, so when I was going through this for the first time and, you know, why did Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Barack do this? And uh-huh. there, there is a thing about creative fatigue. The more decisions you make, and this is something that, again, I don't think I've read the study, or maybe I have, <laughs> but only read the, you know, uh, the, the tagline, the synopsis mm-hmm. of it. Um, but, uh, as you prog- uh, the more decisions you make, the less capable you are at making decisions later on. Like so there is like decisions. an actual thing of creative fatigue and the more huh. decisions you make earlier in the day, the less capable you are of making good decisions later in the day. Yeah, and, and this has been, you know, related to like dieting choices. You know, if, if people are making a lot, have had a really stressful day, they aren't able to, you know, choose the, the broccoli over the candy bar. Right. Towards the end of the day. Interesting. 
Um, so th this has been related to a lot of different, you know, uh, issues, you know, things that can be solved by minimizing creative fatigue. Well, this is also, I think, so appealing to me. Maybe this is why it's appealing to you, too, in a way, because as artists, we don't have a lot of control over a lot of things. Certainly. And so if you can really put some thought into your environment, into your life, and into the things you do have control over, it can feel extremely satisfying. You still have to acknowledge that, okay, I don't have control over everything, but <laughs> Absolutely. it can be satisfying. Absolutely. But, and, and if you aren't, I, I, I no longer question when I get up, if I had a good day or a bad day, was it because of my wardrobe? Nope. Because the good day... I was wearing the literally the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you knew why you were wearing it. And I knew why I was wearing it. Absolutely. Uh -huh. And you're satisfied with that and, and I and, and I have felt good all of these other days wearing the yeah. exact same thing. So let's not blame it on... Uh, I, I can't blame it on my wardrobe. One last thing I can blame yeah. it on. That's interesting. Another like weird, interesting byproduct specifically related to wardrobe is when I do dress for an audition, <laughs> I feel entirely different. With different clothes. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've streamlined your day-to-day -day stuff. <laughs> well, and the clothes feel different. Yeah. Wearing different shoes is really weird to me. Wearing a different shirt, wearing a shirt that isn't wool is weird to me. Yeah. And I feel it. And it affects me. And I'm... Uh, I, I'd like to think that I'm a relatively sensitive instrument as an actor. And like even something as little as that... Even it's more extreme now that you've simplified it. Exactly. In your day -to -day life. Where wearing a, a cotton shirt or, or, you know, something like that, I, I notice it. Hmm. It makes me, um, just kind of like makes my antennae and the, yeah. the plural of antenna, <laughs> uh, just a little bit more sensitive. Yeah. Interesting. And I've enjoyed that. What are your feelings about New York these days? Do you think you're here for the the long haul yeah yeah it's your spot yeah it's my spot i didn't like it you know i don't know if we have it did you move ever... here right before juilliard or were you here for a time before that undergrad for undergrad yes okay. so i came to new york for my undergrad which was nyu okay gotcha um and did not enjoy the city for the first five years this was related to not having a great experience at nyu I did not have a good experience at NYU. You were studying acting at NYU? I was. Yeah. I was at Tisch. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to double major in physics. Uh, that didn't work out. <laughs> um, uh, by no fault of my own. I, I continue <laughs> to blame NYU for selling me a bill of goods and saying, oh, of no. course it's possible. Nobody's <laughs> ever done it, but sure. Why can't you be the first? Give us your money. Nightmare. That said... Um, Along with uh, starting out uh, at NYU in like a long-term relationship mm. with like a high school girlfriend. Which was long distance at that point. Which was long distance at that point. And like really, I'm an introvert to begin with. So like the combination of those two, I did not meet a lot of people. I did not make a lot of friends Oh, also, by the way, NYU was a terrible school for me in hindsight. <laughs> you know, I function much better in a smaller environment where I can yeah. say hello to the security guards who all know me by name, <laughs> as indeed happened at, at Juilliard. Um, but when you're that young and you have grand dreams of being an actor and all you've ever heard is NYU, for whatever reason, right. that's where you want to go. And that's where you're going to go. If, you know, and I got accepted early decision, I was like, absolutely, that's, that's where I'm going to go. There was no question for me. But right. it was, um, uh, I really struggled with the city. Even after I graduated, I um, really didn't, like the city, it was really hard. It was really impersonal. It was, I did not have a community. I did not... Uh, I still very much wanted to be an actor, so I knew that I, it was New York, and I had made enough contacts there that I was like, I don't want to like, and my family's on the East Coast, so I didn't, right. you know, LA was never really a else. really a serious consideration. But um, it was really only until I had a small-ish 
community of people who really knew me and really cared about me that I saw on a regular basis that the city kind of crystallized for me in a way that now makes it not just livable, but also enjoyable. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I was just curious. It's always changing, isn't it? It is. So when you are having a day when you're in the dark place or feeling unmotivated, um, are there any concrete things that you reach for again and again, like a certain book or a place you go or something like that? No. (laughs) Go for, well, it sounds like you go for a bike ride any day. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, I'm also not much of an exerciser. I should be, you know, there's that shame. Um, you know, I get by with a little help from my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly a, a, a call with my sister or a call with um, uh, any of my very, very, very close friends um, yeah. is always helpful. Yeah, I, I, I do feel like I've cultivated... Um, and maybe it's just now at, at this point the nature of our relationship is like if we're like good we're like good <laughs> and like it's usually we talk when we have something to discuss that's like on our minds and like needs some working out mm. with my sister or, or, or with my co- my very close friends and that's great you know I'm I'm definitely not someone who like just talks endlessly for hours uh, about, you know, the latest gossip. Uh, <laughs> unless it's like really juicy gossip. I, I love gossip. Um, but, uh, right, but unless it's like really meaningful. Right. Um, you don't usually call it just a chit chat. Right. You know, what, what's new with this or, you know, the whatever's going on with our, it, it, it's like we're usually working through something and. I'm, it's an iterative process, you know, <laughs> this life and yeah. working through it is, um, I enjoy doing that myself and, and, uh, listening to and helping, um, my very, my very close people do the same. Yeah. Yeah. And then have you seen anything recently of any art form that you would like to recommend? <laughs> Yay! So I've already done one of those. <laughs> Chef's Table on Netflix. Yes. Uh, it is documentary, but it, it is very much artistic. Uh, yeah, Doll's House Part 2. Mm-hmm. Very, yeah, we were very talking about good. that before we started. Really good. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's an exciting time for, uh, for theater. I'm very happy to be where I am and and to I think we're all like have all have our toes and our our minds kind of bent in the direction of the resistance um and I'm very happy to be in the vicinity of that is there anything um I'm so bad at this question I I usually like see things and and let it work on me while I'm there but I I'm quick to forget things there are it's the rare show that like really sticks in my craw uh for a long time i did see a great thing that was up above the russian samovar (laughs) (laughs) i think it's closed oh sad yeah alex was sweet enough to come to drunkle vanya's closing night yeah that was really fun thank you again for coming it was wonderful to be there was a, a spoiled cast that night by the audience, and it was. And I have to say, it was such a joyful. Um, I, w- I went in knowing very little about it, <laughs> I, I, and and I was I was not anticipating Uncle Vanya. It, yeah, you still get the play. You still right? very much get the like it was the play, and and portions of it as good or better than any time I've ever seen it. I'm already sad it's over. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Of course. Um, All right. Well, unless there's something that I didn't ask you about that you really wanted to talk about, I think we're good. Yeah, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller. Music by Brendan Spieth. Audio assistance from Nick Choksi. And a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.